So this afternoon I wanted to continue this exploration of where fear shows up in these two broad domains of daily life and meditative or dharma practice, which in reality are, are not so separate. And both at times in reality, as you've been pointing to, can require a surprising amount of courage. Especially in the realm of meditation practice, we're often moving into new and unfamiliar experiences and states. But even on the most basic level, this invitation to put aside our usual distractions and take time to be with our own hearts and minds, just that is not something that comes naturally for many people. So a few nights ago at Golden Wattle, I shared the famous quote by Blaise Pascal. Some of you might know where he said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Which sounds incredibly modern, but it was actually written in the 1600s. (laughs) And since then, in the last almost 500 years, I think our general ability to be alone with ourselves without distraction has probably deteriorated even further with the use of devices and so on. And there's a fairly disturbing study that came out a few years ago from research psychologists at the University of Virginia and the University of Harvard, Harvard University. They were interested in our capacity for um, introspection, and the sense that it might be diminishing. So they did an exercise where they asked people to spend time alone in a room for up to 15 minutes with no, nothing in the room, nothing to distract them, no technology, except there was a machine that would give them a mild electric shock that they could <laughs> test. And before they put the participants in the room, I think you guess where this is going, <laughs> they invited people to try out this device and see what it would feel like. And everyone said, oh, that is horrible. I would pay not to have that happen to me. But guess what? (laughs) When they were left in the room for between 6 and 15 minutes, three-quarters of the men, sorry, two-thirds of the men and a quarter of the women gave themselves a shock rather than just sit there doing nothing. Yeah, 15 minutes was the maximum. And I'm pretty confident every one of you here is able to sit quietly by yourself for, what, 20 minutes, 30, 40, 60 minutes, more maybe on retreat. So we're already well ahead of the the norm here. But I wanted to bring that in just to illustrate that there's something in us that really is addicted to stimulation and to having our attention out there rather than in here. So there's this unconscious fear of what we might discover and that came out in some of the lists from last week you know if I sit alone with myself whoa what might I discover internally that might be unpleasant so I just wanted to use that to highlight it it takes courage to be introspective and to go inward and to celebrate the fact that we're already Every time we sit down to meditate, even if it's on micro levels, we're strengthening qualities like patience, courage, determination, resolve, equanimity, and so on. And not to overlook that. Because we definitely need those qualities on this journey deeper into the Buddha's teachings. 
And I wanted to start to bring in a little more of those teachings, as you saw in the blurb for this course, really framing it around the core teaching of the Four Noble Truths. Now, I think most of you have some familiarity with those teachings. Some of you might be relatively new. So the Four Noble Truths are sometimes also referred to as the Four Ennobling Truths, the Four Truths that make us noble Because when we are able to live in accordance with them, we experience a deeper sense of purpose, a deeper sense of understanding of our lives. And we're no longer just at the mercy of whatever life throws at us. Instead, we have the tools, the methods, the insights, the understandings that help us to navigate those challenges with some degree of ease, even dignity. I was thinking of this uh, Wednesday night. I had to go to the emergency department because of some slightly unusual health thing, which is probably fine. But I was spending four hours in there. And any of you who've been in that department, it's just vignette after vignette of different forms of suffering. And most of the people coming in don't have any tools. And so there was that sense of while most people are just flailing around trying to navigate the shock, the pain, the fear, and so on. And so I was feeling very grateful to have some kind of capacity, strategy for, okay, now this is unfolding, okay, now this is unfolding, with relative ease. And that's not the norm for most people. So just to, again, let that in and appreciate that. So Four Noble Truths, I'll give you a quick overview of what they are. And we might even do this as a kind of a pub quiz. So, first noble truth, anyone? Dukkha, there is suffering. Dukkha is the Pali word, often usually translated as suffering, but not quite so helpful or accurate. I'll come back to that in a moment, but suffering, stress, distress, unsatisfactoriness. And so sometimes just hearing this first noble truth, for some people it's fear, it's freeing, it's a relief. That's true. For others it's like, no, mm, thank you. Anything else? What's the other truth? I don't want that one. Because suffering hurts and our instinct is to move away from it. So that's partly what inspired me to give this course, that... Quite a few years into my own practice, I realized that all of these teachings are framed around our relationship to suffering, stress, distress. And even after, I don't know, 10 years of practice, I was still consciously or unconsciously going, yeah, la, 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 (laughs) not really wanting to engage with this truth and realizing how much courage it takes. So... First noble truth, just there is suffering. Second one, second noble truth. There's a cause of suffering. That cause is craving the energy of clinging, holding on, but also the inverse, resisting, pushing away, ignoring, denying. So that sort of unhealthy, compulsive reactivity to suffering, we could broadly see that as craving And so our fear response can be classified as a form of craving. 
But to the extent that we're willing and able to bring mindfulness to this truth of dukkha, and to then we have the opportunity to move into the terrain of the third noble truth, which is... Mm, I think you're jumping a little ahead. There is a way. Thank you. So it breaks it down. There is... It is possible to release suffering, clinging, craving, and to experience fearlessness, nibbana, freedom, awakening, realization, liberation, and so on. The heart-mind that is free of greed, hatred, and delusion, those three core afflictive energies that we spoke of last week. And just to name that when we hear this term nibbana, liberation, freedom, you know, for many of us it sounds like, oh yeah, very lofty, distant, remote kind of goal. But in the suttas, the heart-mind that's even temporarily free of greed, hatred and delusion, that is a momentary taste of freedom. So again, this understanding that training ourselves to notice when fear is diminished or even at times gone, when greed is in abeyance, when hatred is diminished, especially on retreat, we can taste those moments of what Ajahn Buddhadasa calls temporary nibbana. And over time and with practice, these start to become more frequent, more available, and ultimately our kind of default orientation in the world. So, third noble truth, there's an end of craving, just let go, right? Got it? Not so easy in practice. So the fourth noble truth, the, end of the way to the end of suffering, there is the path, the eightfold path, which includes not only meditation factors, but how we live our daily lives, how we speak, how we act, our ethical behavior in the world, and our wisdom, our right view, right intention or right thought. So the Noble Eightfold Path, for those of you who, this might be new information, is that list of eight factors that mostly traditionally (coughs) translated as right view, right intention, right... What's the third one? Right action, right speech, right. Oh, right intent. No, right intention and right thought are the same. Yes. Here we go. Right view, right thought, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So just to point out, this is a multifaceted path. Meditation alone is only one or perhaps two of the eight factors. It's also, it's a very holistic prescription that we need to help us move in the direction of freedom. So thank you. Just, uh, and just to say that word right, uh, these days some people translate it as wise or appropriate because our binary nature, when we tend to hear words like right, we fall into binary ideas of right and wrong and good and bad and so on. But appropriate speech or wise action is a little perhaps um, easier to 
to understand, to digest. So, what I just said could easily be a whole eight-week course in and of itself, and really it's a whole lifetime of exploration. So I wanted to take time today just to zoom in a little bit more closely to the first noble truth, that understanding that there is suffering. And again, the problem with this translation of dukkha as suffering is we can hear there is suffering and think, well, yeah, sure, my life has challenges, has its ups and downs, but compared to a lot of people in the world, I can't really say I'm suffering. So we might not immediately connect with what's been pointed to here. Because this Pali word dukkha has a much broader range than the English word suffering suggests. So in the first noble truth from the suttas, it says, now this, practitioners, is the noble truth of stress. This is Tanasarabhiku's translation. He translates dukkha as stress. Birth is stressful. Aging is stressful. Death is stressful. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress and despair are stressful. Association with the unloved is stressful. Separation from the loved is stressful. Not getting what is wanted is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. Got it? (laughs) Again, there's a huge amount in that paragraph. We're not going to go into all of it in detail. But I noticed in many of your fear lists, birth, aging, death, sickness, aging and death were listed as stressful. The fear of aging and dying alone, unsupported and so on. Definitely stressful. Having to be with what we don't like, pretty obviously stressful. Not getting what we want, stressful. (laughs) So there's physical suffering, there's psychological suffering. But elsewhere in the teachings, the Buddha also talked about dukkha in relation to more subtly unpleasant aspects of experience. He named it as one of the three universal characteristics that are common to everything we experience. So because all experiences are impermanent, it's unreliable, it's incapable of providing lasting satisfaction. So even pleasant experiences are dukkha, are unsatisfactory because they leave us grasping for more when inevitably they end. So the apparently the etymology of this word dukkha came from a word that... Uh, refers to an axle hole in a wooden cartwheel. And when that wooden hole doesn't fit the axle properly, you get this bumpy ride. So there's a sense of, uh, you know, just the sort of baseline friction of life. (coughs) And I like to test that just to see, you know, right now, just to see, is there anyone here who in this moment is absolutely 100% Comfortable, happy, at ease. No, there's nearly 30 people in the room. No one can say, yeah. Because often, if only I'd had another cup of tea before this started, or (laughs) if only it wasn't so stuffy in here, or if only the traffic noise wasn't so bad, or if only she'd stop going on and on about suffering. (laughs) Then I'd be happy, right? There's always something in the background that's just not quite right. 
and that's dukkha. And it can be as subtle, Alan was saying, like, um, you know, I've got my leg crossed, but in a moment I'm going to uncross it, not even consciously, because my yes. body's saying, okay, I'm uncomfortable now, I need to change. Yes. I need to sit up. Yeah. Yeah. So the so dukkha of just, normal. yeah, having a body that's yeah. constantly needing attention. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> These were specially ordered <laughs> to help you contact the first noble truth. <laughs> yes. There is dukkha, the dukkha of uncomfortable chairs. So I'm not going to talk for too much longer, just so you know. We're going to have challenges in knowing it too, isn't it? Yes. Because it may not be apparent. It may not be clear. Right. Because there can be constant aversion or the mind is not clear. Yes. So there's no actually resting on no. the experience. It's just... So in life and in meditation, yes. the challenge is to actually know it. Yes, yeah. That made me think there's a, a fairly graphic sutta where the Buddha was a group of monks and they saw this jackal come running out of a cave and dive into a bush. And then a few minutes later it came out of the bush and went, somewhere else and then a few minutes later it went back into the cave and the Buddha said do you see that jackal it has mange wherever it goes it's uncomfortable but it mistakes it thinks if it gets in the cave it'll be okay and then it's not so it goes into the bush and then it's not okay there and you know it's a very poignant description of often we're just oh if I can just get this if I can just get that if only this and nothing is going to ultimately do it for us. That's the sobering truth of this first noble truth. So, learning how to, as John was saying, just recognize it and to some extent release our idealism or our resistance that it shouldn't be happening. So again, Gil Franzdo, one of my teachers, he talked about on he, a practice he did for a while of whenever he registered any experiences unpleasant, he just silently named to himself afterwards, of course. So it'd be like wishing I'd had another cup of tea, of course. Wishing I wasn't so sleepy, of course. Wishing these chairs weren't so uncomfortable, of course. Wishing we could talk about something other than dukkha for a change, of course. You know, just... Rather than this, you know, we're in this thing called samsara that's never going to be permanently perfect. So letting go of that grasping after, constantly trying to change it and make it better. And again, this is not an exercise in masochism. It's not just suck it up, the suffering, you know. But noticing that when we're getting caught in relentless compulsive uh strategies to try and get away from suffering which often make it worse because of that sort of underlying agitation resistance that we're not seeing so this is a training and we're trying to, I'm trying to do this gradually starting with relatively minor forms of fears and anxieties and unpleasantness and gradually build the muscle so Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, talking about this first noble truth he says the Buddha starts with what is close to hand, with the suffering inherent in the physical process of life itself. Here, dukkha shows up in the events of birth, aging and death, in our susceptibility to sickness, accidents and injuries, and to hunger and thirst. 
It appears again in our inner reactions to disagreeable situations and events, in the sorrow, anger, frustration and fear aroused by painful separations, by unpleasant encounters, by the failure to get what we want. Even our pleasure, as the Buddha says, are not immune from dukkha. They give us happiness while they last, but they don't last forever. Eventually they pass away, and when they go, the loss leaves us feeling deprived. Our lives, for the most part, are strung out between the thirst for pleasure and the fear of pain. We pass our days running after the one and running away from the other, seldom enjoying the peace of contentment. Real satisfaction seems somehow always out of reach, just beyond the next horizon. Then, in the end, we have to die, to give up the identity we spent our whole life building, to leave behind everything and everyone we love. Got it? So, just to take a moment to notice when we hear this first noble truth laid out so boldly, perhaps you noticed some twinges of a fear response, maybe irritation, anxiety, denial, arguing, ignoring. Is that true for anyone? You notice any ripples of... You know, I've read that quote many times and still when I read it again now I can feel this just, no, say it isn't so. You know, just really... Either and, that or just a sort of a numbing to it. Yes, it's too much, it's yeah. too hard, numbing, shutting down. So it's great to notice what our common responses are. Because unless we recognize those, we get into conceptualizing, arguing, disputing, denying, proliferating in relation to the unpleasant aspects of this truth. And I want to highlight the term proliferation because it's a technical term in the Buddha's teachings. The Pali word is papancha. Some of you may be familiar with that. And it refers to the tendency of the mind to get caught up in constructing, concocting, fabricating, projecting, identifying, taking personally, generally spinning out spinning out in unhealthy reactivity to whatever it likes or doesn't like. And we can see this in relation specifically to anxiety. At least, just want to check. How Have you noticed when there's some anxiety, Some uh, it often comes with a lot of mental activity? Is that true? And we get caught in these kind of thought loops, obsessive compulsive thought loops that just keep going over and over and over and over again. And they're most always about some future catastrophe. You know, right now sitting here talking, but oh, you know, when sometime in the future there's going to be this disaster. So that seems to be a very common pattern with anxiety. And I wanted to explore uh the mechanism that takes us from just the basic knowing of our physical experience often so quickly into the terrain of proliferation. So breaking down how that happens uh, to help us get a little bit more of a handle on it. So those of you who've done courses with me before, you know I often, almost always frame 
what I present in terms of these, the metaphor of the two wings to awakening, being wisdom and compassion. And the reason I use that metaphor so much is because it so powerfully indicates the need for balance. We need wisdom and compassion to be equally in balance if we're going to fly. And all of the Buddha's different meditation techniques are aimed at cultivating one or other of these two wings. So mindfulness is a part of the wisdom wing. And then kindness, metta, compassion, all skillful states of heart-mind, a part of the compassion wing. So when we come back, we're going to be looking at both of those together as ways to support um, healthier relationship to fear, to anxiety, to this first noble truth. Okay? So that was quite a lot. <laughs> I think it's a good time just uh, to take, uh, again, about a 10-minute break. Uh, I won't open it up for questions for the whole group right now, but if you have any burning questions, feel free to come and um, ask me, and we'll start again at uh, just after 10 past. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.